The conversation starts and Margaret Warner says to me, John Soltz, you just got back from Iraq. Why are you supporting John Kerry for president? And I said, I'm supporting John Kerry for president because George Bush sent soldiers like me to die for weapons that don't exist. And if that doesn't prove he failed as commander in chief, frankly, I don't know what does. And I never got so many emails in my life after I said that on the PBS NewsHour. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, John Soltz, founded and runs a group called Vote Vets which has become a notable part of the progressive political ecosystem. He is someone I've wanted to have on my show for several years now, so I was very happy to get the chance to talk to him and hear the story of how he came to found the group and build it into a voice for progressive veterans in our political process. So first my sponsor, then my interview with John Soltz at Vote Vets. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. John, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm John Soltz, chairman of VoteVets.org, co-founder, started the organization in 2006, served twice in Iraq and served in Kosovo before that, served my second tour in Iraq in 2011, training Iraqi and Kurdish Peshmerga forces in Northern Iraq. And uh, in 2003, I was in Baghdad with 1st Armored Division. In Kosovo, I was an armor officer platoon leader and started vote bets in 2006 uh, between my first and second tours in iraq you know because we believed there was you know a lack of voices in, in democratic or progressive politics of military veterans uh and and since then we've built something that hasn't really existed giving veterans a voice in domestic politics and foreign affairs uh and we we do that through a variety of different ways but you know 15 years later we've got 1.5 million people who've signed up We've got some huge successes, both legislatively and elections. It's a long-term project that we've been working on and that I've been working on, and we've got many years left to sort of solidify this piece of the infrastructure that's required. Yeah, and I'm glad you're out there doing what you're doing. It's certainly a crucial piece of trying to put together a broad coalition that we need to win. How did you end up going down the military route? What kind of family did you grow up in and how did you end up taking that decision? I grew up in the DC suburbs. Yeah, I was always interested in the military. I was a boy scout. I was an Eagle scout. So I was interested in the outdoors. Uh, When I went to college, I, I was looking, you know, if I was going to be in the military anyway, I almost signed up for the reserves going into college, but my, my dad had talked to me more about ROTC. So if I was going to go into the military, could I find a way to help it pay for school? I had ended up going to Israel when I was 16 for a few months. I was there in 94, which was sort of, you know, the precursor to the, to, you know, the peace process and, and, in 
during Oslo. And my experience in Israel was one that, you know, everybody kind of served. It was a rite of passage in society. Um, that, that wasn't necessarily the case in my generation in the 90s. I graduated high school, so there was a lot of opportunity. You know, there was starting to be the emerging tech market, but that wasn't really my interest. And when I was 18, like my first week of college, I signed up for ROTC. So I was I was doing that and playing soccer in college. I still feel like I probably learned more playing soccer and doing ROTC than I learned in the school in school and in class. Those issues still play a large role in my life today. When I signed up for ROTC, I went to airborne school uh, in '97, and then when I came out of that, I was given a scholarship to contract with the army uh, after my sophomore year. So then, you know, the army was paying the way and. I think without the scholarship, I wouldn't have been in the situation to even start vote bets because when I ended up leaving active duty, I, I wasn't paying school loans. You know, I, I was saving money in my deployments and in the wars because basically what little savings I had paid for my first year and I had one loan I paid off immediately when I came into the army, but the army paid the way and my school gave me free room and board. So that that was sort of initially what, you know, I wanted to be in and there was benefits and I remember my senior year of college, everyone's like, what are you doing next year? I'm like, I'm going to be a tank platoon leader in Germany. And I was so excited. And so that off I went to Germany and it wasn't much about politics. I felt like, you know, I was a, a college athlete and I was an Eagle Scout and I may not have been a four pointer student, but the army's looking for well-balanced people that, you know, can lead. So that's what sort of put me on that route. I've been struck by the a number of veterans I've talked to that, rose in the ranks in the military and testified to the leadership skills that you learned there. Is that your experience? Yeah. When I look at progressive politics, right, uh, I see a lot of people that are extraordinarily smart about issues, but that's not necessarily leadership. I think that training leaders is a different dynamic than, than a class that people take in school, Right. And I could say the same thing about, you know, basic understanding of finance, that the things that we learn in school aren't necessarily relevant to uh, some of the skills that are required, you know, in the workplace. Um, I think the most important thing you learn in the army immediately is that you need to know what you don't know and you need to get extraordinarily comfortable being the least knowledgeable person on a subject. When I went to Germany and I was a tank platoon leader, you know, and this is long before I made the field grade ranks. You know, there you are, there's four tanks, there's there's 15 people underneath you, and they've all been on tanks more than you have, yet you're the officer in charge. So you better get real comfortable real fast being in charge, knowing that the people underneath you are the technical experts. And I think a lot of the times in academia, they're like, you're graded on what you know on the paper, right? So in high school, if you said to somebody, hey, can you help me write that paper? Hey, I had a soccer game. Can you tell me what was on that test? Hey, can you help me write this speech? They call you a cheater, but in the real world, they call you a manager. And I think that's why we see a lot of our CEOs and, and people that really begin to manage and lead large entities are, are people more that have ideas and vision and begin to look for people that are the most knowledgeable on a subject and not trying to be the most knowledgeable themselves. And that's certainly the biggest thing I learned real quick, which was these people salute me and call me sir but they know a lot more about this tank than I do. So I better get comfortable in that position really quickly. And I think that is missing, right? Certainly missing in academia, but it's a skill set that hopefully people get in one form or another. And there's other 
places you can get it, but the military is one of them certainly where that's, that's clear very, very quickly. Were you like captain of your soccer team? Did you find the athletic world also contributed? I, I wasn't the captain. The athletic world feels a lot like the military because you feel like you're a part of a team. Right. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things at Vote Vets. I'm on with all these different consultants. I'm like, did you get your Vote Vet shirt yet? Like, because, you know, there's so many consultants out there, right? And there's two ways I can handle consultants. You know, consultants can, I can be another client to them or they can actually feel like they're a part of the team, right? Because ultimately they work for a firm. The biggest thing, like when you deploy with a unit and you come back is you're, you're a family. And when you, if you ask people what they remember most, and I, I remember when I was in college, the swim coach said to me, I trust, I promise you, you're going to remember more about the games you played in soccer than you do things about certain classes. And I, I had a double major leaving college and I, I studied history and, and political science and I liked it, but there's something about being a part of a team that you learn in both organizations. And I think the team concept is something you take in, the, in leadership where if you want people to really work for you, they need to feel like they're a part of a team. You, you can't make them feel like they're just, you know, another client. It's just a, I'm going to punch in and punch out. Punching in and punching out is, is a death to any organization because if you want performance from people, they have to feel like they're valued and they really belong to something bigger than someone's own personal ambition, you know, sink or swim together. I played soccer from age nine to 41 and basketball to 50, 51. But I, I was thinking that I agree with you about that team thing, but maybe the games I was most involved in was when I was coaching like 10 to 12 year old co-ed teams when it came down to the end and the game was tied, no one was rooting harder. You know, there's something about that relationship to a team, even sometimes when you're not playing, that is so oh, intense. Yeah. No, I've ended up moonlighting as a soccer agent. It's a long story, but I, 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 I work with these professional soccer players that play soccer in Germany. When I went to Germany, I ended up playing soccer. And I learned a lot about German soccer when I was living there. And that's certainly a skill set I brought back here because from time to time, there's Americans that play soccer in Germany that I, I feel like I'm, I'm a mentor for and help them with their American political problems in the soccer community, which is, a, a, you know, U.S. soccer has become a lot more sophisticated now than, than it was 15 or even 20 years ago. You know, it's, a, it's become a bigger business. And I played for my, my town in Germany. And I, when I went up to play, they're like, you can't play, you're American. And I went and trained one day. And the next day they came back and they said, Unterschrift here, which means sign like sign for this club. So I ended up playing <laughs> my local town in Bad Nauheim and playing for them, which was great. And, um, you know, it's soccer's opened me up to the world also. In fact, you know, in, in the army, I always say to people, who's your favorite soccer team? And a lot of the soldiers talk to them about college football. I'm like, I'm not talking about that socialist sport. You know, if we want to talk about football, some about pro football where they pay people for beating their head into the ground. But I ask them about soccer because any country that we go to in the world, that's the only game that matters. And it, it really would help to get people to think about a less U.S.-centric policy of what their life is going to be like. If you're an embedded advisor in Iraq, uh, you better know a lot more about soccer because they don't know anything about the University of Alabama college football. And they certainly don't care who Nick Saban is. And they certainly can't understand why someone would make $7 million for that sport. So from a cultural standpoint, soccer is, you know, it's an enlightening game for, for our military to, to understand a little bit about it. Because when you go, like I said, to Iraq, that's the only game that counts. Tell me about the founding of Vote Bets. People are, are making progressive groups every few minutes. There's just a, a jillion of them. But you actually made one that has, you know, that has grown to be a real player. How did you get into that in the first place? 
I'm glad you asked this. So let's, I guess from a personal standpoint, I was at the University of Pittsburgh after my first tour and I was writing graduate papers on the overextension of the armed forces. And at the time in 2004, the argument against the Iraq war was it was immoral, right? That it was an immoral war. Coming out of Iraq, there was a lot of people that were in Iraq that liked us, that liked the invasion, right? The Kurds were extraordinarily happy in the North. Where I was at in Mamadiyya, they were trying to kill us every day, right? It was, it was not what was sold to the public, right? And prior to Iraq, when I was in Kosovo, I was in Kosovo for the Bush-Gore election. And I sat there, I was out in the Serbian village, right? We protected the Serbs in Kosovo because the Albanian mafia was running around and the Serb army left. So all the U.S. forces were living in these little Serb enclaves. And I sat out there and I watched all night. And one of the, 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 the conversations throughout that election was we shouldn't be in Kosovo because our army shouldn't be doing nation building and all of this stuff. I mean, that was the Bush argument. And in Iraq, we had 10 divisions in our army and we had four of them in Iraq. And it was very clear early on when we were getting mortared that there was no WMD that was any type of threat. Like it, it took like three days to realize that. It took me one day in Iraq to get in combat. And the truth is in Iraq in 03, I got my ass kicked. I mean, I really got, I got my ass kicked. It, it took 30 days to lose a soldier. It took me 24 hours to get shot at. And every day that we went outside the gate, it was like we were a bullet magnet. And the, it, the, the war was not what was sold to the public. And so the reality of the Iraq war to me at that point was exactly what George W. Bush had opposed in Kosovo, right? It was some type of adventure of nation building and democracy promotion through force that the American military was not just unprepared to fight, but turn on your news today and look that Russia is about to invade Ukraine because for the past 10 to 15 years, they've been rebuilding their military while we've been stuck in these nation building counterinsurgency operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. So because I was in Iraq in 03, I, it was very clear to me that George Bush wasn't turning the corner, that the war was not going to be easy, that it was going to completely overextend the military in exactly the way that he opposed it. So before I, I started to write articles about, because I was a graduate student, you know, that maybe this was exactly the type of war that George Bush didn't want to get into. And eventually someone called me, they wanted me to meet John Kerry. I thought it was a joke. You know, the Secret Service called me, I thought it was a joke. I went to the airport. And he got out of the airplane and I said, sir, I, I just got back from Iraq. And he said, you were in Iraq? And I said, yes, sir. And he says, how are things in Iraq? I said, American soldiers need your help. And he said, why? I said, because there's no weapons. He said, how do you know that? I said, because I got mortared every day. And if, if I was getting mortared, the, the chemicals would have been in the warheads. Like, and he says, do you know what I did when I came home from Vietnam? I said, yeah. And he says, I'm, I'm going to give you a call. Give me your phone number. I was like, all right, but you're not going to call me. But I just wanted you to know I'm here because I the Bush administration has completely backed into this national security disaster of Iraq, which was going to cost us trillions of dollars and thousands of lives. And, you know, not to mention our military was now stuck in something we couldn't get out of and we might need it. And literally the next night, this guy calls up and says, Hey, is this John Soltz? I said, yeah, this is standby for Senator Kerry. And this is like April of 04. So it's the height of the election. So I can't, I can't believe you're calling me. And he says, I want you to work with us. I said, okay. And I worked for them for free. And the next thing I knew, I was like on the Jim Lair News Hour. And they called me up and said, John, you're going to be on the Jim Lair News Hour. And I said, okay, but what's the News Hour? Because <laughs> I hadn't been in Europe. <laughs> oh my. So the, the conversation starts and Margaret Warner says to me, John Soltz, you just got back from Iraq. Why are you supporting John Kerry for president? And I said, I'm supporting John Kerry for president because George Bush sent soldiers like me to die for weapons that don't exist. And if that doesn't prove he failed as commander in chief, frankly, I don't know what does. And 
I never got so many emails in my life after I set that on the PBS NewsHour. I didn't even know what was going on, but it was through those relationships that I made enough relationships on the carry campaign that I was called up in 05. I went to train soldiers at Fort Dix that in 2006, we were able to take and privatize a little bit of the infrastructure that we knew was needed after going through the 04 campaign. So the first part of it is there has to be a market demand. And there was a market demand at the height of the war for veterans that could speak out on the war. There was a market demand for infrastructure on our side to help Democrats who weren't veterans be defended on this. So what does that look like? Well, in 06, there was a few people jockeying for like this progressive veterans thing. And there was a debate on whether or not it should be nonpartisan. My vision was Democrats needed this vehicle, right? And it was hard. It was hard because when you call people up and you're 29 years old, they, they, at the time, everyone talked about ACT, America Coming Together, which was a huge independent expenditure entity in 04 and it went away. And so we ended up raising money for veteran candidates. That was going okay. But the real breakthrough happened when we made a political commercial. And it was an ad that every Democrat told me not to make. Every Democratic pollster was afraid to touch it, except move on. Move on gave me $5,000 to make this ad, Eli Perizer. And you know, the early folks at Move On really helped train me on some really great skills. Wes Boyd and Eli Perizer and Tom Matsey was there and Elise Hogue, who was at NARAL. Like, they, they saw a little bit of like, I think, aggressiveness from a younger person that they didn't think would quit. And so we came up with this ad concept. And when I was a kid, there was a couple ads that made an impression on me in my life. One was, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? And the other was Bill Demby, who was a, a Vietnam veteran who lost his legs, and it was the DuPont commercial. So we, we decided, let's, let's make This Is Your Brain, This Is Your Brain on Drugs in the military. And we, we went out to the Arizona desert, and we put two mannequins up, one with the body armor we had in Iraq, and one with the body armor Republicans voted against. And we shot through it with an AK-47. And we said, this is the difference between life and death. Senator George Allen voted against giving our troops this. And we opened up. And we could see the bullet holes in the one and not the other. And when that ad came out, all of a sudden, like a quarter million dollars came in online. And all of a sudden, I started getting access to larger Democratic donors because the real value at that moment was, holy shit, like these guys can help us in almost every race in America because they can attack Republicans on voting against the troops, which is just something that was unheard of at that point. I think the reason everybody was against it is that basically in polling, and in progressive infrastructure, you know, where you sit is where you stand. So people that come out of the LGBT community, they're going to focus on those issues or people that come out of labor are going to focus on those issues or environment. And that doesn't mean those issues are bad. We actually agree with all of them. But is someone actually giving the code to the pollster to actually test a message that no one else is thinking about? And when you start getting into campaigns later and later and later, people become beholden to the message, right? This is how we get into the, the healthcare, healthcare all the time last cycle. This just wasn't working. Right. It was tested. It worked. Everyone was invested in it. And I think, you know, our creative concepts on polling early in the cycle is really a gap that's missing when we talk about the challenges with data. And we were able to present some concepts very late in the 2006 cycle that no one even thought about how to test. And once those ads came out, it really gave us a brand. Um, and so that really gave us the start. But by all means, if we hadn't you know, held some cash back at the end of the cycle and decided we were going to try to build the organization, it would have been gone. 
I think the other thing now is there's all these organizations and they're all using these email tactics that are just brutal. You know, you get spammed 25 times a day and you're like, what am I giving to? And they're always chasing this issue. We tried to build a brand around an issue, right? We, we try to stick to those things and how it's relevant to veterans. So we may not raise as much as people that are like super spamming automatic opt-in, but the people that we're bringing to us actually believe or want to identify with the progressive veterans group. I think the third part is a lot of organizations that start up, and this is something that I tell all donors, you know, is this organization going to be here in two years, four years, six years, or eight? Because there's a lot of infrastructure that has to be built that if it goes away, all the money that goes into that organization is useless. And there's people out there that, you know, they're starting organizations because they want to burn down the money because they want to go be a CNN contributor or they want to, you know, try to go into the administration. And so you've got to build something that's designed to last for a long time. And I think when you look at like Gene Karpinski at LCD, right, or you looked at what Alan Malcolm did at Emily's List and some of the people that I've tried to study, you know, the founder has to stay around for a while to, to create the, the type of funding streams that you need to exist for a long time. Because ultimately, the reason we exist and we matter is because we're in a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, I'm glad that it, it matters a lot to me that you view it that way because I can still think of all the people that wouldn't give us money in 2006 because they didn't know me or they thought I'd go away. And eventually, people catch on that this is actually something that was needed and it's different. And it's going to be a partner with, you know, the biggest progressive organizations out there over many, many years. And so that's what makes the investment worthwhile in any organization. Well, what was it about you that made it so that you were in it for the long haul? At what point did you know or understand that? And, you know, I guess, why are you still in it? It's a great question. Um, I always tell people in DC, they come see me, you know, you got to know what somebody wants in this business. And once you know what they want, then you know how to handle them. For me, I had no option but to do vote bets because I was having a hard time with the war. So, you know, there's a lot I could have done. You know, I, I had, I, <laughs> there's a lot I could have done. I think for me, when I started working with the Kerry campaign, it made me feel like I was a part of something. And I felt like I was angry about my experience and it gave me a way to fight back. The first real thing I did as like a political action was, you know, in 04, I was having a hard time. I finally went to the VA and was just like, look, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I'm in graduate school with people that are my age, but they're not, they're, they didn't, they're nothing like me. And at the time the Bush administration started closing veterans hospitals, say so they were closing this VA hospital I went to. So I went up to the press conference up in, in Pittsburgh where I was in school. I walked in and I said to the press officer, Hey, I'm here for the press conference about the closing of the VA hospital. And he was there with a the cop. And he said, look, kid, you can leave here two ways. You can walk out of here or this cop will take you out of here. So I said, are you really threatening to arrest me because my U.S. Senator is coming? And I want to ask the question. And he said, look, kid, I'll tell you again, you can walk out of here or this cop will take you out of here. So I went across the street from the VA and I got all the local TV cameras. And I was like, I want to know why I'm good enough to fight in Iraq, but not good enough to ask my Senator a question about why they're closing the VA hospital I go to. And, you know, that was the art of vote bets, right? How do you give other veterans that voice? And for me, I, I think anyone who's involved in this space, I think anyone who's really involved in activism or, or politics, like it has to be in your heart. Like I, I wasn't following 
TV hits. I wasn't following money. I wasn't following fame. I, you know, I had no idea in 2006 that Vote Vets would be where it is in 22. What I was following was the fact that I felt deeply hurt by my experience in Iraq and I wanted to fight on it. And th- there was a certain level of necessity for me to work through my experience and give a voice to people that was willing to challenge that administration at that moment on how we were feeling, because that was not the mainstream thought at that point, right? That the veterans would come back and begin to, to, to talk about it. And I can't tell you how many people now say to me, how did you know the Iraq war was dumb? I was like, was I was there in 03? Because those same people said to me in 07 or 08, I can't believe what you say, that you believe that, but there's really nobody in this country that I run into now that thinks invading Iraq was a great idea. Right. And so I think there, there was a lot of deep thought and analysis about my beliefs and about what made me feel better about myself every day to get up that really drove me to stay with the organization and build something that was real, you know, and that I still have that fight. And when you're not focused on money or you're not focused on, you know, fame and you're focused on maybe your internal feelings every day, I think people can become really, they can really create and ignite some change with those types of deep motivations. When I lose that, then maybe I'll leave vote vets, you know, at a point where I feel like the organization is in a place where it can continue without me. What's important about how vote vets developed over time and what its relationship was with the, the continuing political cycle, like trace a little bit of the changes over time on both of those threads. Yeah. I think for one, we've, we've gradually grown people who come to the organization. So there's a lot of organic support in the organization uh, from small donors, both in the mail and online. Um, I think that we've maintained our relationships with high net worth supporters. We've built allies in the labor movement, which has been extraordinary. I think we were in the, the super PAC space before super PACs. And because we were there first, it allowed us to really become a partner with the sort of I call them super, super, super PACs now, like the folks that have hundreds of millions of dollars every cycle, where they view us as a group that they can trust and work with to handle a certain part of each race that they need. You've got to be able to work with the other you know, democratic groups. And it's hard at times because at times in primaries, we're all on different sides. But look, people have attacked us publicly. We have not attacked a Democrat or a democratic group in public, right? And we, there are certain things we try not to do because once, once you start you know, doing that stuff in public, it gets difficult to work with people privately. And so there are some basic ground rules that we try, you know, we try to support the team. um, And you try to figure out if you have to break with a policy, right? We broke with Obama on Afghanistan surge, right? Um, It was a ridiculous idea at the time. I think history proves that we were right, but you you notify people before you do things and you try to keep those channels open with, with your allies. Because ultimately, our relationship with our own side is what's most important and how we exist as, and, and work with everybody. So if folks are working with Republicans, it's a lot harder for us. You know, uh, you can't have it both ways in this business. So we're really, you know, much more focused in the progressive space. And, you know, right now, for instance, this cycle, it's trying to hold the House and the Senate with our team. Post-Trump, during Trump politics, to me, just feels fundamentally different than what came before. And Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it, it, my worries are of a different order. And some of them tangle up with military. When you have a president who wants to 
hold power despite losing an election, the military takes on a different significance. And Trump tried to do things like change leadership in the Defense Department in preparation for really scarily different moves that we haven't seen. Does any of that kind of revamping of expectations affect your work or your attitude towards the military and politics? Let me say this first about veterans, you know, and let's talk about why Joe Biden won. Joe Biden lost white men a lot less than Hillary did. And he, he lost veterans 14 points less than Hillary did. And we, we've seen real destruction in Trump's numbers with college-educated officers, right? Just like we have across the community. So I, I think that the senior leadership of the military was always in good standing with the election. I think we all have seen that there was a lot of veterans at the Capitol. I think that it makes our work more important in regards to democracy protection going forward. We've launched a huge disinformation campaign. We're, we have a massive voter file that we're building to, to target. I'm them. assuming that's anti-disinformation. Anti-disinformation. That's correct. I apologize. And we, we've launched a massive voter file to target veterans directly, a voter file project, which has been a huge success. So, you know, we, we are certainly into the science here of targeting veteran, independent, persuadable, and democratic voters. I feel like, you know, with Trump, he attacked senior leaders so much. He attacked Mattis. He, he, he attacks um, Gold Star families that the top of the military sneezed at Donald Trump. I think the larger concern is Trumpism is not dead. And um, this idea that, you know, another leader will emerge, right? I'm obviously in Florida right now where there's Ron DeSantis. And, you know, um, the, the, the challenge, I think, for Democrats and progressives is, the best people to defeat Trumpism is actually Republicans, right? They've got to win primaries. And right now, the group of folks who challenge Trump look a lot more like Rogue One than they do Return of the Jedi. And I, I wish them luck. Um, but I, I think the military, up until the point of the insurrection, held. I think there's been more fracturing since then that is concerning, specifically with the National Guard generals, the tags that are questioning Joe Biden's authority on the COVID vaccine. Right. This represents the type of fracture we haven't seen from the Guard since civil rights movement. There are concerns here. Folks can read the op-ed we placed for General Eaton, General Anderson, and General Tagubo in the Washington Post um, around Christmas where they talk about, you know, we need to look at the next decertification. And I know there's a lot of pollsters out there that want to talk about, you know, kitchen table issues. But the truth is this is a democracy election because – if Democrats don't force some Republicans to lose on democracy, then you know we're essentially just rearranging the deck chairs in the Titanic. And so when you have a Republican veteran like Mike Garcia running in California 27, who Joe Biden won his district by 13 points, and this guy actually voted to decertify the election. If this guy's allowed to return to Congress after that vote, then you've given every Republican who wins a Democratic seat this cycle a pass, right, on like decertifying anything they want with Joe Biden. You know, the battle of Bunker Hill was a theoric victory for the, for the revolution and win or lose, win or lose the Senate or the house Democrats have got to take, they've got to force Republican casualties on the certification of the election, or it's a free pass for Republicans if they get control of the chamber and they will question Joe Biden's election. And I think that that reengages this conversation in a, in a scary way. 
I think when you're communicating to veterans, people who are not deeply embedded in this, they might assume that most veterans are unlikely to support progressive causes or candidates the way they assume that rural America won't or faith America or different categories that are assumed one way. What have you learned about communicating with veterans that applies more broadly to communicating with the country? Well, I I think the second part of that is, you know, veterans are regular people. So, you know, I, I think direct, honest conversation with people is an advance. I mean, veterans have the same concerns that a lot of people have, right? I will tell you the military is the most egalitarian society I've ever been a part of, right? It is extraordinarily progressive. The four-star generals don't even make $200,000 a year. Officers eat last. Everybody has healthcare. We have school systems, public school systems for our kids overseas. The amount of progressiveness inside the military is extraordinary. It's integrated in a way that we don't live in, in our cities and so on. Look, like we integrated African-American units into the combat units in Korea. You know, this is how many years before the South was integrated. And, you know, that was our big argument for don't ask, don't tell repeal. I mean, they, I went over to the Pentagon to talk to Carter Ham at the review and we had all this poll data and some woman's like, what does this mean for the American family? And I was like, lady, I don't care about the American family. I care about the American military and national security. And the truth is, you know, LGBT folks have a right to serve openly in the military. Right. And they said, well, people are going to leave the military. That's nonsense. I've never heard of a single person not staying in the military because we repealed this stuff. It doesn't mean we're perfect. There are challenges, right? There are absolute challenges. We, we can read about them in the press every day. But when you really think about the pay scales and you, you think about the healthcare, I didn't actually understand private healthcare challenges until I got out of the military and I left TRICARE. I just went over to the aid station. They ripped my, my wisdom teeth out when I was in Germany. I didn't realize that cost ten dollars or $15,000 for a regular American. So there's a lot of things in the military. And when you, when you frame that for regular Americans, it's a holy grail. If you start going after you know, veteran benefits or raising healthcare costs on military retirees on TRICARE, or you start going after VA benefits and disability pay, I mean, it's a holy grail. All the veterans groups support that stuff. Those are all progressive ideas. And that's really where we, we've been able to do a lot of damage, right? If, if, if you're for the war, but you're against taking care of the troops when they come home, we win those arguments when we take away Republican or Democrat every time when we talk about veterans, right? When people are voting against pay raises, when people are voting against expanding disability payments over a certain percentage. You know, right now there's a debate in Congress over burn pits. Everybody's, you know, for the burn pit legislation. All of a sudden the Republicans think it costs too much because how many veterans were affected by burn pits? When we can take away Republican or Democrat and talk about these, these issues that way, ooh, it's, it's good. I mean, even Afghanistan. I mean, everyone's happy we got out of Afghanistan. Some people don't like how it happened, but there's not a lot of people inside the military today that feel that Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, I mean, maybe they felt going into Afghanistan was different than Iraq. I think that's fair, killing bin Laden. But the way that General Petraeus sold this, you know, the, the interventionism and the counterinsurgency strategy was, it was fool's gold. I think a lot of people can see through that now. You talked about that ad you made in 2006 with the body armor. We're going into another midterm. The prognostications are somewhere around brutal, although we got a ways to go. What are you working on along similar veins that might be helpful? Stories. Last cycle, you know, we were making stories inside the news cycle and, you know, we 
you know, the debate over the Confederate bases. And we made an ad called Camp Bin Laden. <laughs> we name a base after Osama Bin Laden or Al Zakari, and he got like three million views. And then, then we went after Trump and called him Benedict Donald when he went to West Point. Um, and then, you know, when he went to Walter Reed and he wore that stupid mask, like, and he's, you know, I mean, we were really able to troll him about his numbers when he went to military bases. And by injecting into the news cycle, we we're really able at that moment to do really hard hitting stuff. Trump was different though, because everybody was paying attention. I think this cycle, we've got to get more down to districts again, right? I'm not sure there's going to be that national thing. So people always say, what makes a great vote? That's ad. Because all these vendors will call you up and they'll say, I make the best ads in politics. Vendors are a part of the pie, right? They have to understand your brand, but great ads are because you have great stories behind them. And the ads that we're looking at this cycle are who are the people that need to be heard from? Who are the veterans or military families need to be heard from? You know, we've run ads from wives whose husbands overdosed to her veterans on opioids, right? Th those are people that have stories, right? We've run ads of people who've been paralyzed in combat or lost their legs, right? And, and someone voted against their veteran benefits. So the, the ads that we're always looking for is who has the story that needs to be told in this moment. And we're on some good leads. And, and when we make great content, it forces support for the organization. It forces support from the donor class because there's so many ads that are just facts on a screen, facts on a screen because it pull tested well. Well, something can pull test well. But it doesn't make, turn into a great ad if the creative is trash. And, you know, I don't get paid 10% per ad, right? So I'm interested in creativity, on content creation, and bringing real Americans to life in every ad that are local to that area that have a story to tell. And tying that somehow to poll data that makes sense. And we spend a lot more time on the creative, and we look for real people from those communities. And that's what makes a great ad. Not like the This Is Your Brain on Drugs ad, but the Bill Demby ad. You know, the DuPont commercial in 1990s of a guy who was now able to play basketball because DuPont gave him legs and he's never lost a step. And th those those stories about real veterans or real Americans and how Republican policy has hurt them. Those are the ads that we're looking for. If you have this particular place in the progressive ecosystem. If, if I remember right, there's a concerned veterans for America on the other side. I don't know what else. How do we stack up? in terms of what we have in terms of persuading veterans to be with us versus what they have? They don't actually have anything like we have. So concerned veterans, you know, the Coke network is going through a lot of transformation and they're a lot less of a, of a GOP hit shop today than they were, you know, seven years ago. We actually work with concerned veterans on ending and repealing the 2003 authorization to use the military force in Iraq. Um, I pro we're probably not on the same page on Ukraine because we feel that forced posturing in Ukraine can help prevent the war, or at least in NATO countries, but not in Ukraine. They were very active with unlimited money in the 2014 cycle, making veterans issues, electoral issues. But we have not seen that from them because a lot of the Republicans they helped have not, you know, I think been good on some of the Koch issues. In addition to that, some of the stuff that we do at Vote Vets, there is no one on the Republican side that, that does it. So we have a lot of hard money, money that we give to candidates. I know Tom Cotton's made something to try to compete with us, but no member of Congress is going to be able to compete with Vote Vets because ultimately their interest is in their own career. And our interest is not in me running for office. So when these organizations come and go, at times people have tried to create a counter to Vote Vets on the right, but it hasn't really 
existed. Um, there's the veteran service organizations that don't play in races. And then there's a variety of Republican vehicles that start up and shut down and start up and shut down because it takes 10 or 15 years to really build one of these things. And we've built a moat. Where do you find 150,000 online donors per cycle, right? That's from years and years of work. So we are building these voter files to target veterans in a way that I'm not really sure they're aware of. I know that they had GOP vets four years ago, but again, it comes and goes. And nothing that's worth anything is a one cycle wonder because that's not what's required to be successful in the long run. I mean, you've made yourself a successful political entrepreneur. What have you learned about that kind of entrepreneurship in this space that you could convey to other people who are trying to build organizations? You have to have a long run one. And, and you have to do it because you believe in your heart that you're building something that really matters. It can't be consultant driven. It can't be led by consultants creating super PACs. It can't be something that's like this cycle. It, it shouldn't be something that's based on one candidate or one race, right? Because then all of the people that are around and all of the brand around that, it's given away. And, and I don't even recommend donors supporting like pop-up super PACs anymore because it's like so great. They spend $30 million and people make money. But what about the earned media? What about the press contacts? What about the emails? What about all of the things that build an organization? And so- you know, I, you've got to go long or go home, right? This is a long-term game. Nothing is built in one cycle. It's a 20-year project to build an organization. That's my biggest tip to people. What do you think the biggest misconception is about where veterans sit politically in the United States? I Look, I think, yeah, people think veterans are Republican. Guess what? You know, when we helped repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell repeal, one of my biggest arguments about the Ivy League was they need to allow ROTC in the Ivy League. If because of the policy they weren't, then you cede the military to everybody from, you know, different communities, right? You want the military to look like our country, right? That's how we prevent the military during an insurrection to do the wrong thing. The military recruits in all communities in America. So people that enter the military traditionally, you know, have certain political views. They'll leave the military with those views. And, you know, the military has more like-minded progressives than people think for us there might be a lot of veterans groups fighting over that 60% that are Republican or 55, but for us, we're organizing that other 40%. And if we can get those folks out in large numbers, we can really cut losses. So there's plenty of progressives and Democrats out there. If there wasn't, we wouldn't have an organization. We wouldn't have created a brand that people will say, you know what, vote that represents me. And I don't feel connected to the VFW or American Legion because they don't take stances on hard issues. So every hard issue we can take a stance on, we do. Is it, conceivable to move from being a minority of the veterans to a majority or is is it pretty stuck where it is i I, you know people ask it a lot i don't know you know i'll tell you one thing there's going to be a lot less veterans in congress in the future than the past right because there's no draft and so i I think when you have a volunteer force I, i i don't know if it will move you know i i know trump damaged republican numbers with veterans i don't know if that will stick right But again, Trump's issues with veterans in the military community was a lot of the times some of the ridiculous things he said about gold star families and suckers and losers and, you know, trashing general officers that people respect. You know, he waged a war against the military, which was a little bit of a different proposition. You mentioned League of Conservation Voters and Emily's List. When you think about the constellation of groups that you admire out there on the progressive side, who else comes to mind? Look, we like to work with groups that 
that have been around and, and built stuff, you know, like I, I mentioned move on also because at some level they trained me, you know, they grabbed me and trained me, you know, back in 2006 and 2007, the labor unions are, are long-term partners of ours also, because, you know, they're fighting for their workers' rights. There's groups we work with and there's groups I, I admire and I've studied. And, and I think, you know, LCV is one I've studied extensively. You take things that each group does well, you know, move on runs, a great member program where that's not, it's not like some of these emails that people get bombed with every day. It's a substantial program. And, you know, I learned that piece from them and and at LCV, you learned how, you know, they build an independent expenditure program. So with Emily's list, you learn how they use direct mail early on to help raise money for candidates. And so you take a piece of different things that you see, even last cycle, we saw what Lincoln was doing on social media with quick ads. And we, we, we kind of built that in. So you take different things from different organizations that are doing well and you build it, you know, in a way that you feel like works for you or your organization. We seem to be so split up by category on, on our side, race, groups, environmental, labor, veterans, different subsets. Do you, do you think that we have a good way of coming together and, and like unifying on message and unifying on tactics? We do. It's just a matter of people being able to distinguish who actually spends money on electoral politics versus who's doing advocacy, right? And so if you're going to spend money in a race right now and you're not talking to House Majority Pack or Senate Majority Pack, then you're not really in the game. You can't just go out there and freelance. You know, you, you can't have everybody in a battle shooting at the same target. That's how we waste money. Winning elections isn't just about veterans or white voters or African-American voters and Latino voters. The American military wins in war because we bring everything to a decisive point on the battlefield, armor, infantry, air power, naval assets. That's what Democrats need to win. A lot of the times there's arguments, oh, it's, it's all about Latino voters in this district or African-Americans here. And the truth is in the military, we believe in joint operations, right? And you know, the Goldwater Nichols Act brought that together. We're getting to this point where we do coordinate through the tables. So not everybody is spending their money targeting this constituency in this district at the same time. And it's just the truth is there aren't a lot of groups at those tables. And it's not fair of me to call out groups that are there and aren't there because that's not, you know, my interest. But those tables do exist. And just some folks aren't at that scale to be able to participate at that level or they're they're, you know, everybody is selling that they're participating, but not everyone has the ability to do that, right? And there is a lot of coordination. So for instance, vote vets might buy TV time in the rural part of a state to work on, you know, perhaps white, you know, white working class voters. And another group at the same time might be working on base turnout in the city. We are at that level of precision, but there just aren't a ton of groups that ever get to scale to participate at that level in those, in those conversations. What's your level of optimism versus pessimism about the next two elections? Only twice since World War II has the party of the House, the Senate, and the White House gained seats in the midterms, and once was after 9-11, okay? So I, I see Ukraine as an opportunity for Biden to show strong leadership and prevent a war and stand down Putin. I cannot tell you what inflation looks like in six months. They raise rates. I think the irony of this is Reagan crushed rates up high to bring down Carter's inflation, and he stared down the Soviet Union. Um, I can't tell you what the election is going to look like. The inflation is rather transitory, but it's, pre it's prevalent. I think the macro dynamics are against Democrats, but I have no idea how it's going to end up. I think the re-election is going to look like last time. It's going to be a free-for-all. There's going to be money flowing everywhere. 
the Democratic base will be fired up. And I, I think that's how this thing ends from a macro standpoint. But wh- whether or not this cycle is as bad for Democrats as people are predicting, that's too early for me to, to say that. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, just I appreciate it. it was a good conversation. So hopefully we can, we'll do this later in the cycle or next year. That was John Soltz. John is at votevets.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.